Hello, Peculiars. It is so good to see you guys here, and I'm so excited that we're about to have a really fantastic evening. Double trouble, we have two authors with us tonight, and in fact, uh, we also have two cocktails. So Davey and I are super excited to, to be here tonight, and um, I know you're all glad to have Davey back because I kept messing things up last time, including forgetting to turn us on. <clears throat> so yay, Davey. Oh, we can't hear you, Davey. Of course, I figured out how to start the show, but I couldn't figure out how to unmute myself. <laughs> I was saying, oh. I'm sure when the show started right at seven o'clock, they figured out that I was back. Yeah, they probably they they all knew. I see lots of highs. Um, I I was I also saw Jennifer said that she can confirm in reading um, the unseen body that nurses will discuss anything and everything gross that is going on. I I think that that's probably true. See a high from Tori and from Chloe and. Mike, and I, I may have missed some other people earlier on. Lorelai is here, and Allison, Jennifer. It's so nice to see all of you. Happy, fun faces. And especially because we're about to introduce two really, really cool people. And first of all, we have the unseen body with Jonathan. Ta-da! Yay! And Hi, secondly, everyone. we have the corseted skeleton with Rebecca. We really need to have some after effects in, in here where we have a little puff of smoke. Yeah, exactly. Fireworks going off. <laughs> Welcome, both of you. I'm so excited that you're here. And uh, Davey and I are going to take turns um, sort of appearing and disappearing because uh, it's a small screen with a lot of faces on it. But first of all, very important thing to discuss. We do have our cocktails this evening. There were two, one for each book, but I only got one suggested name. One suggested name, which was Laced Crooked. Um, so what we're going to do tonight is ask you to put your suggested cocktail names in the chat with the word cocktail in front of it. And as those come up, we're going to pop them up and Rebecca and Jonathan get to choose their favorites. So that's that's basically how we're going to handle this um, tonight. So that's the important, important news. Uh, I see a couple other highs. Stephanie is here and Anna Lopez. Panther Girl says we should be throwing confetti whenever you guys come on. I, I kind of agree. Um, but basically, uh, I, I invited both of you here, even though I know originally I think you're both like, huh, okay, why? But I felt like your books went together, but maybe it's just me and my strangeness. But I thought the inside of your body, the outside of your body, the outside of your clothes, doing things to the inside of your body, it all sort of made sense to me. And so I'm so excited and thrilled to have you here. Um, and I want to start off by toasting you both. Cheers. Hopefully, Cheers. Uh, our, our, oh, oh, and do you have? Are you drinking the ginger version there? I am. Yeah, the mm. with rum. With rum, fantabulous. So, we're going to be kind of sort of pitching back and forth right now. Our folks are typing uh, questions and comments for you in the chat, um, and it does take a couple minutes to matriculate. So, before we get too far uh, along. A couple of things I wanted to say is, um, Jonathan, in looking at your book and reading your book, I didn't realize when I started reading it just how much of a journey it really was. Like it's inside the body, but there's a whole lot happening outside the body. What gave you the idea to do that? Um, I think it's part of the fact is that before going to med school, I always had a large variety of strange and unusual hobbies. And I think that the perspective that I get from those hobbies kind of carried over and I brought that perspective to me when I started learning about the, the human body. So 
I love traveling the world before I went to med school and experiencing different cultures and interesting foods. I enjoyed exploring the natural world and kind of was always the kind of uh, guy that would turn over every stone just to see what was under it and walk around every fallen over rotting log to see if there were mushrooms growing on some side of it. Always kind of exploring, curious, wanting to learn everything. And so I kind of brought that same perspective to the human body. And when I started learning about all the body, uh, all the body parts, bodily fluids, how they work together in medical school, I couldn't help but kind of think about uh, you know, the connections, the comparisons kind of to the natural world and the, the importance of different cultural and geographic things that I brought from kind of traveling. And so uh, the kind of all over the place nature of the book sort of reflects, I think, how I think and how I thought throughout med school as we were learning about the body parts. It was like, oh, that's just like this random experience I had in this corner of the world. And I kind of couldn't help but make those connections. So I finally just put it all down into a book. Love it. I love it. Um, and then uh, again, I do start, I'm starting to see the comments over here. Uh, Jennifer Pierce has got one. You guys keep typing. Um, Rebecca, same kind of question for you. What I love, of course, so I, I had done my research work, some of my PhD work in at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And we have a natural history museum there that has a massive bone lab. And so I, I have spent lots of hours, you know, down looking at bones in the bone lab. And I love that. I love the fact that you took this journey through bone skeletal you know, literal physical material objects in order to come to an understanding of, of how this all works. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I've always been fascinated with fashion and I've always been fascinated with bones. I was the girl who would pick up, you know, fish bones on the, the lakeshore and tie them into my hair and really completely gross out my friends. Um, but bones are comforting to me. There's nothing more peaceful than being down in a lab and holding somebody in your hands and knowing that you get to tell part of their story. I love doing that. One of the things that has been awful about, you know, not being able to travel during the pandemic has been all of the labs are closed. But I hope to get back to it really soon because it's just... It's my area of passion is is telling those stories and touching those lives that were lived so long ago. And I love that. I, I like both of those. You know, there's a real hands-on approach to both of your work, uh, to the way both of you work. And for me, I think that's really, some things get so esoteric and philosophical. And for the Peculiar Book Club, we, we really try to keep things as grounded as possible because I think it's really important. Um, one of, uh, let's see, Jennifer Pierce, <clears throat> she was saying that, when she worked in medical surgery in a hospital, um, they would just talk about everything you know, while eating lunch in the break room. And you mentioned the fact that nurses, doctor, you know, that you you just you do those kinds of things. And uh, Anthro Girl actually cued it up, um, followed it up by saying Emmy's eating lunch next to an autopsy table, and that she's eating her lunch in an Anthro Bone Lab, and you just kind of get desensitized to that. Um, I thought those were some pretty crazy stories that you had to tell. But I agree. I worked in a medical museum. You know, and after you see, I've said this before, apologies, uh, peculiars have heard this one before, but, um, you know, after you've seen so many photographs of syphilitic genitalia, like there's just not a lot that shocks you after that, frankly. My dad was a medical photographer when I was a child and, you know, I grew up with those types of things. I have a preserved heart valve sitting on my bathroom counter right now that came from my dad's work at the University of Illinois Medical Center. So. Yeah. It, after a while, nothing really faces you. 
a girl says, uh, you haven't lived until you've gotten a bone splinter from a 200 year old bone. <laughs> oh, Sneeze bone dust after a week in the lab. Yeah. Like it. Um, Jennifer has a question. She said she, she first references, I had written an article about um, fat and obesity as related to healthcare in America. And uh, basically I was saying, you know, fat is not necessarily unhealthy. We've kind of got a real mixed up kind of idea about what that means. Um, so she says, what, wondering, Jonathan, if you have any further insight into fat and our diets in healthcare. Well, I think that it's a complicated topic naturally, but I, I really think the, the most surprising and true thing is that the nutritional science understanding of fat is really at the beginning. I mean, shockingly, even though we've had nutritional science around for a century, it seems to have led us down these kind of false starts. You know, we kind of vilified fat for a while and thought sugar was fine. And now it seems we were totally and completely wrong about that. And every piece of advice that a doctor gave their patient about nutrition for a few decades might have been total BS. So um, and we're, we're kind of just starting again in a way. We're not starting again, but we're really starting from the beginning in many ways. And understanding both fat on the body and obesity, you know, or fat in the diet. Mm -hmm. or fat floating in the bloodstream in the form of triglycerides and cholesterol, and how, especially how those interrelate to each other. You know, eating fat doesn't make you fat. Eating fat doesn't necessarily raise no. your cholesterol, but it's super complicated. And, and honestly, uh, doctors have a lot to atone for in terms of, you know, leading people down the wrong, the wrong road. But I, I hope the coming decades will see us write that. Oh, and I think the stigma too. There's so much stigma. I, um, I, I wrote about this in my article. Um, a friend of mine, basically, she, and she's not, Guys, like she looks perfectly fine. I would not even call this person. I mean, there's different sized bodies, right? Like they don't all, not everybody's built the same way. But every time she went to the doctor saying something's wrong, something's wrong, their first point was, you need to lose weight. She's like, but that's not what I'm telling you. And so there's a lot of stigma around that. And of course, body shapes have changed. Um, Rebecca, you can tell us. I mean, in the Victorian period, this concept of these, you know, super ripped, like that just wasn't, that wasn't a thing. No, definitely not. In fact, having a little more weight on your body, particularly as you got married, grew up, had children, etc., was seen as a good thing. There was a lot of malnutrition during that time period. And if you could afford to feed yourself well, if you could gain a little extra weight after marriage, you know, you had to keep yourself marriageable first, but after marriage, then, you know, that was seen as, as a, a good thing. Well, it's a kind of a commodity. I, I do. We do have a question here. This is coming from David. Does Jonathan still eat chuck <laughs> as a snack? <laughs> well, I live in Philadelphia, and it is a little hard to get around these parts. Um, right. But every time I go to Alaska, I would, you know, I do enjoy it quite a bit. It's a really interesting food. It's not nearly as chewy uh, as you might think. It's quite refreshing. <laughs> Good. Good. I, I believe that we're going to be talking to Dan Snow, actually, in a couple of weeks. And I believe he's eaten some strange things that I'm looking forward to asking him about, too, uh, while he's up there. Um, another question, this one from Anthro Girl. What are your thoughts on BMI? And, and I have to say, I've got to tell you my bias. I I really, really, really get angry at the BMI's ideas. Um, but, yeah, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not an expert, obviously, on, you know, um, these conditions, but certainly I know the BMI is often inaccurate, you know, kind of muscular people tends to overestimate um, and then other people can underestimate. I mean, I think there's just no one size fits all, you know, even every every different culture uh, has a kind of a different genetic makeup that makes them metabolize food differently. A lot of studies recently showed that natives of the north, like Inupia in uh, Alaska or 
the Inuit, which are a close relative in Canada and Greenland, you know, they have lived in that harsh environment and their diet has consisted of more than half animal fat, you know, for millennia. And so they've, their genetics have adapted to uh, make their bodies metabolize certain kinds of fats found in marine mammal blubber more efficiently. So, and when they eat that diet, actually their cholesterol is very low, even though they're eating, you know, shocking amounts of fat. Yeah. I would not recommend the average American, you know, adopt probably. the traditional Inuit diet. It probably won't work the same way. And even within a culture, the, the, the variability from one person to the next or within one family can be so variable. There could be someone skinny who couldn't put on weight as much as they tried. And there could be someone in that same family who's always on the heavier side, maybe according to their doctor and can't, you know, lose weight no matter how hard they try. Well, it's fascinating too, because this concept of body shape and what we can do to shape it, right? So we... We talk about, you know, oh God, weight loss is a constant thing, right? The ads for stuff and things. But we used fashion to do this, too. I mean, this is so much of what Rebecca talks about, that it wasn't that you were supposed to lose. It wasn't that you were supposed to diet to get a skinny waist. No, it was this completely different understanding of how that gets done. Yeah. And so first, my thoughts on BMI. It's total bullshit. It's <laughs> just right Amen. out of the... Yeah. When I was a, quote, normal BMI, I was absolutely miserable. Um, I lost so much weight at one point that I was going into early menopause at 27. Like, my body literally could not synthesize estrogen fast enough to actually work the way it was supposed to. I gained a little weight. My blood pressure stabilized. Um, my health got better. My skin got better. My hair got better. Everything got better. And then we do have this ideal body shape that we have in mind. And this fluctuates from decade to decade, century to century. And we're all sort of looking towards what media tells us, what fashion tells us, what, you know, what the newest style tells us. Hey, skinny eyebrows are coming back into fashion. I am not going to change my eyebrows and we can all decide on our own what our own ideal body shape should be based on our health. Um, with my work, yeah, it was the fashion that was meant to mold the body. In fact, from the six, 1600s, 1500s, yeah. from the 1500s, doctors were saying that the corset was meant to mold the wax of the woman. And it was it's just such an expressive term. But the, the shape, you know, it could have been done with diet, it could have been done with fashion, it could have been done in all these different ways. Yeah, well, and what kills me about corsetry, too, and, and your book talks about this some, too, is it wasn't just that they wanted to narrow waist. You were supposed to have this massive, there was supposed to be all this other stuff up here. So you had this kind of inverted triangle look about you. And so um, I think we tend to focus on the waist, probably because that's, that's kind of our, our obsession right now in our own culture. But um, we're missing out on the fact that you're supposed to have like a lot else going on. Yes. And when, so again, this fashion fluctuated from time period to time period. And when um, large busts were in fashion, the waist could be brought in to sort of emphasize the bust. Right. When they weren't in fashion, you would get things like uh, empire waist dresses. So during the 1820s, where it was straight under the bust line, and then it hung from there. And it was all, it's its a lot of illusions. Right. The waists weren't even really that small. But yet they were... Yeah, they were being they were being molded. Um, I was seeing uh, Kathleen Richardson said in theater we tend to love stage corsets, as we know we'll have support and be thin. 
they're obviously not hurting anybody, but reading the book, um, she doesn't want her insides to move, saw courses in a new light. Uh, oh. And we were a little bit too. Kathleen, then I hope you never get pregnant. <laughs> pregnant will change the insides of your body much quicker and much more drastically than wearing a corset for a stage production. The um, movement of the corset, it's uh, smaller, it's controlled, it is temporary unless you wear it all the time and for decades and decades. The women that I'm looking at in the corseted skeleton would have started at, you know, seven, eight, uh, sometimes as late as 11, but usually not later than that. And they'd have worn it for decades. Mm. So you don't have to worry about the, about the, <laughs> but it is, but people, you know, that was, that was considered proper and it was improper not to do that. I and mean, I think that that's the other thing is there's a whole, um, I'm trying to think of a, of a, a high heels. Maybe I was trying to think of something, you know, equally um, weird that does weird things to your body, but that we're like, no, it's fine. Um, it's really hard. It's hard to kind of see that. I was orthodontic braces. Yes, there's a there's one. I um, I was seeing Susan Ballinger. This is a really common for women going into the doc and being told to lose weight, no matter what the complaint is. Um, and I, you know, I know a lot of people have experienced that or had other things ignored because of it. Uh, Lexi, hey, I'm just catching up. Sorry, was saying she was dabbling in nutrition and um, the stigma behind fat and now carbs too. And there, there really is. Um, people talk about I'm I'm built this way because I have something wrong with me. <laughs> like I have Ehlers Danlos syndrome. I'm never going to have this. Is just what I'm like. But um, but you know the, the concept that somehow that one particular body style is is praised over another. It's, it's all really, really fascinating um, stuff. So I, Lorelai Peterson asks if Rebecca can give an example of body modification for male identifying people, because I know it was out there. So I don't do much with um, male body, male identifying people in my work. Um, but as mentioned, orthodontic braces, good for all genders. Um, we also think about things like... Uh, Beards, facial hair hmm. is a type of body modification. You can wear it or you can take it off. You can modify your own body that way. Um, there's not a lot that has to do with constricting the body that I know of. But again, we have tattoos, we have piercings, we have things that work for all genders. And in some specific um, cultures, tattooing is very gendered, so male right. or Specifically thinking of Japan during the early period of um, gang formation, when tattoos were a sign of Yakuza uh, mm -hmm. affiliation, and that would have been only men. Right. Okay. Um, and of course, Susan Ballinger also talking, she said her grandmother telling her about they used to bind their breasts in the 20s, right? So it's like, you need more breasts, you need less breasts. Have you seen, I actually wrote an article about the butt lifts, the Brazilian butt, where they're injecting the butt with this is not a thing I need, but um, <laughs> it, somebody died doing this. And it's just like, wow. So there, it is still around and it is um, particularly strange. Susan Ballinger suggests cod pieces. But I think those are mostly on top of the body rather than, <laughs> rather than changing the. You can look at it, though, as fashion augmenting the body. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And indeed, um, before high heels were a female thing, they were a male thing, specifically in France. Also wigs, also, you know, etc. 
Um, it's talking about the filing of the mm-hmm. teeth too, which is Jules being put in teeth. That's that's true as well. Actually, that kind of p- pitches us back to Jonathan a little bit. Jonathan, you're, you've traveled a lot. I know you're not an anthropologist by training, but um, you feel like one a bit. Like when I read, I've spent a lot of time in medical anthropology and that's what this feels like a lot to me. I feel like I'm traveling with a medical anthropologist, though I know you're a doctor. Um, and so I, I'm wondering in what ways you know, what are the more interesting things that culture has taught you about the body? Yeah, so I, I think I play an anthropologist, but I'm not an anthropologist. Um, but in a lot of my <laughs> travels, um, I pretend I, I've, I've traveled. I, the one bit of anthropology research I did was in the Russian Far East, where I stayed with uh, a, a, a variety of indigenous groups and kind of spent a few months there, um, which is in one of the chapters of my book. But you know, traveling around both before I was a doctor and after I was a doctor, there's definitely a lot of cultural differences that you get, um, you know, when you when you travel, people have different perspectives on the body, you know, there's different diseases in different parts of the world. So uh, often life is shaped around those diseases. Um, but even the way people see their own body uh, can be very different. I really got a kick out of, for instance, in India, the way that especially women, but men too, decorate themselves, they really have a, a wide variety of uses for the forehead. You know, they do a million different things with the forehead. You can just put a dot on there as a bindi, which is for mm. beautification. You can put a little, um, they take a cinnabar, a red pigment, and women will put it up into the part in their hair. That's how they, sh- from the forehead up into the part. That's how they show that they're married. And when you go to a temple or, you know, I, I swam in the Ganges River, which is not always medically advisable, but I wanted to try it. Um, and I was fine. But when you come out of the Ganges or some other holy site, you know, you get often get this orange or red um, pigment smeared on your forehead. So the forehead is like this huge part of their religion, their culture, their beauty. And I realized like in the West, we really don't use the forehead at all, even though it's this perfect, big, blank, empty canvas that you could do all kinds of things on. And we basically completely ignore it. And so that was a very different perspective on that one body part. Unless I suppose um, you think of Botox. Um, so we want to we want to make it a blank slate, I suppose. Right, I no glitter. Glitter? Glitter. Glitter. Glitter works. Glitter? Sure. So uh, when I, I didn't when, see a ton of glitter in India, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe not India. Um, I just wanted to... Matrix Resurrections. I did the the falling lines of code on my forehead. Oh, that's very cool. Now uh, that would be a heck of a tattoo right there. Um, Anna Lopez Carr says, as a population and health geographer, she really appreciated your connections between landscapes and bodies. I did too. I thought that was a really fascinating um, way of looking at of looking at the way people move, move around as we are in a big body, basically. The, the world is like this giant body and we're all moving around in it. Um, do you want to say more about that? Because I think I have simply not thought of it that way. Yeah, um, I think that uh, what made me think of it was sort of, I had learned before before I ever went to med school, actually on that trip to the Russian Far East, I spent a bunch of time on the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is just north of Japan, uh, but part of Russia. And um you know, I learned there, I, I did a lot of traveling with the native family. We went um, on horseback through the mountains. You know, there's no roads. There's nobody else around, complete wilderness, more bears than people, really. And I, I kind of learned from, the, the, it was a couple and their five-year-old kid, and, and I sort of learned from them how exactly they travel through through the wilderness. And basically, it's a lot of following rivers upstream and knowing which branch to take. That's the bottom line. So that's how they find the mountain path that they need to get to to get over that ridge into the next valley. Um, they know where they're going. They know which streams uh, to take. And it's just a matter of where you turn. 
And when I uh, then went to medical school, became a doctor, I, I found that the same reasoning applies to, um, for instance, it, many examples, really. But um, for instance, when someone's having a heart attack and a cardiologist is going in with a, a catheter to snake from sometimes the groin, sometimes the wrist, up the arteries all the way into the heart and then into the, uh, or actually just before entering the heart, they go into the coronary arteries and basically have to navigate their way upstream, uh, knowing which branch to take based on the EKG findings, basically knowing exactly where the location of that blood clot is. So you first enter the left main coronary artery, you might turn right into the left interior descending and then left into one of the obtuse marginals and there you find the clot. And it's the exact same uh, branching network of, of flowing liquid blood or water and basically just knowing where to turn and so someone who navigates you know someone in Kamchatka who's gone the same route uh, to their hunt their summer hunting cabin every year since they were born knows that uh, terrain very intimately and a cardiologist who has cast you know hundreds of people also know exactly how coronary arteries branch so there's kind of a similar understanding similar problem solving approach that's fascinating i you know and i think I like that concept too, because I think, um, we need to be a little bit more connected between our bodies and the, and the environment. Like it's something that we're not always, not always good. Um, we do, we do have a, a slight, um, a question. Whoa, you guys are so fast. Hang on. Another point about glitter here. Kathleen Richardson was saying the 2000s fascination with glitter everywhere, the glitter glue and glitter gel and glitter spray. And I did not know about this <laughs> at all, but I missed this trend. But uh, glitter in the eyeballs does not sound particularly good, actually. Uh, I, I did not miss this trend. I um, So I was born in 81, which put me smack dab in the middle of the, the glitter fanaticism during my late teenage years. And it turns out I never really get out of that. I consider myself a sparkle goth. Sparkle so, goth. Nice. I'm sort of a goth goth. With extra so, goth. Really, anything with glitter... That also includes black, and I'm there. I made a leather skirt for me <laughs> premiere, totally glammed it. <laughs> the glitter phase, very nice. Um, I also have a question for some show and tell. Jonathan, uh, someone asked if they can see your travel pharmacy leather. Pouch. Oh, yeah. Here it is. Oh, okay. And what's all in there? Oh, well, there's a lot in here. It's surprising, <laughs> even though it's small. Earplugs. You should never travel without them. Absolutely essential. Of Lip balm. Lots of things. Some of my favorite over-the-counter medicines, of course, ibuprofen. Of course, pseudoephedrine. Not phenylephrine. That's the, the pseudoephed that doesn't work. You need the pseudoephedrine. That really works. Benadryl. So many uses. Yeah. Nausea, allergy, itch, sleep aid. I can go on and on. Designing travel pharmacies is one of my passions. I love it. I love it. I, I did... Um, I do not have a travel pharmacy, but when I worked in uh, in a university before I absconded from academe, um, I basically had a box full of because you know students they come in and they need stuff and I I sort of prided on myself of being like, do you need this? What about this? Maybe one of these? You know, like I had I had it all. So I, I get it. I get I get the mania. I get the enthusiasm. Now I just try not to go any place without like a really weird brooch. That's that's kind of my travel necessities these days um <laughs> susan ballinger says sounds like my purse <laughs> yeah all of that stuff goes in my purse but mm. i can't take any over-the-counter pain medication oh. um i also have eds and unfortunately it's compromised both my liver and my kidneys so mine are still okay well I'm alcohol bending. is fine 
Oddly oh, good. Perfect. Um, <laughs> no Tylenol, no ibuprofen, huh? No Tylenol, no ibuprofen, no anything. Thank God I can take Man. ibuprofen. I would, uh, yeah, Auntie Brandy. Yes, I was. I was very much that person. Um, actually, one of my one of my colleagues. I used to even keep vegan snacks because she was. Vegan. I'd be like, she her blood sugar is dropping. I can tell. So yes, you're right. I'm that person. Um, nice to be <laughs> useful. Speaking of jewelry, Rebecca is wanting to see the awesome rings. Yes, and um, they're not rings. They're oh. Oh, here we go. They're medical braces. Oh. They, uh, as mentioned, I also have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and these keep my joints from slipping out of place. So hold on, let me put down my cocktail. An example. Oh. Nice. Interesting. They all have a different function, and um, unfortunately, I'm down one at the moment because it broke and I need to go have it smothered. But they do sort of um, double as, you know, an extension of the whole goth persona. No, I, I, I'm digging it, actually. I, so I, I have ED, but not clearly not the same kind that you have. Um, and so my rings are just rings. But uh, I, I'm, I'm bendy. Most of my problems are on the inside of the body, which is also why I like the unseen body. So, again, you can kind of see why I might have wanted you all on the show. Um, Jennifer says those are the coolest looking medical supplies she's ever seen. They're really fantastic. And um, I love the fact that they do look awesome and that they're very practical. Regrettably, they also catch on everything. Yes. Um, the, the number of times I have accidentally stapled my hand oh. to my hand. <laughs> Understandable. Beyond well, you know what? Yeah. Let, let's take a minute to talk about corsets, though, because corsetry is in itself also a kind of brace. Um, people, these... As much as we uh, are down on the corsets sometimes for how they affected bodies if they were worn too tightly or for too long, they had medical uses as well. There were things that they were used for that were good. And could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, actually, this is completely apropos because I'm translating um, a 1908 French textbook from French to English, and it's on what corseting does to the body. Now, this uh, the author, the Dr. Ludovico Falwell, hated women and he hated tight lacing and he just lays all of the blame at that um, at that that level. You know, the women were tight lacing and therefore they were the problem. The corsets were not the problem, he says. A good corset properly used could do all sorts of things like brace up the musculature, um, you know, support women who were childbearing because you could get uh, pregnancy corsets. They could, in limited capacity, help with the circulation. They could do all of this stuff. They did not help with the circulation. He's wrong on so many things, which is why it's so wonderful to be translating and annotating his book. Should be out in 2023, for those of you who are interested. Um but yeah, corseting uh, is used nowadays as back braces. If you have a medical back brace, you have essentially a plastic corset. Yes, and there are children now who are born with the um, like with spines that need adjustment. They basically wear versions of tight lacing until until they're adults, which I think is fascinating. Anthro girl wants to know oh, how. Sorry, <laughs> Anthro girl just asked how the pregnancy corsets work. Um. So I'll I'll 
continue on with the male corset and then segue into the pregnancy corset. So the male um, skeleton that I looked at, he had scoliosis and spina bifida and he was using a corset as a brace for his conditions. The pregnancy corset had gussets. So you would um, lace it open or closed depending on how tight or loose you needed the stomach. There were also others that had uh, buttons or hooks up the front and they had multiple levels of them. So you could just expand it. You could expand the straps um, higher or wider. And there were ones that also had gussets over the breasts. So you could unlace them for nursing. Fascinating. So I would really like to see a picture of that. <laughs> is there a picture of a pregnancy corset in the book? I don't think there is. Is there? Uh, not in the book, no. no. We have very we have limited, limited space for photographs, unfortunately. <laughs> Utterly and completely fascinating. Well, um, I know that we're about midway through. And so you guys still have lots of questions. I'm still seeing things pop up in the comments. So please continue to do that. But Davey, I think it's time for a musical interlude. It is, but I, you know, I do have. Uh, I did Google pregnancy corsets. If we want to take a look, yes, can we take a look. Do you guys right, want to take me, a look? I do. Yes, definitely. let me share my screen here. Uh, all right, something like this. Something like that. Yep, oh, it would have multiple rows of hooks and buttons in order to, and they would be. Uh, so this one would be on the smallest setting and then you could just sort of widen it out and you'd see more of the buttons i love it that is fantastic and with that <laughs> that is so cool holy crap Fiona <laughs> says her son got his scoliote corset yesterday so that's fantastic so we're still using something very similar um Absolutely. even that's fantastic all right music Oh, hello. Hi there. It's Charming Disaster, and we're so thrilled to be here on the Peculiar Book Club. Paint a picture inside a dream. Watch the garden in Paris Flowers framing a distant view Under a heaven of Prussian blue Stars and planets come out tonight Moon is glowing in china white Picture an angel with eyes of lead Trace the image in Saturn red Shine, shine, white. 
Don't look back or don't turn your head. Chase the angel in Saturn red. the little eyebrow raise at the end that we get from Jeff. Um, they stayed at my house when they were traveling through Cleveland, and I can tell you that they are both truly very awesome. Um, does she play the banjo? Banjo, Mike Green? I don't know. Um, I'd have to ask her. She used to, she, she actually, she ran away and joined the circus when she was younger, like people do. So she does circus things. Um, okay, I had a couple of questions come in while the song was playing, and one of them, following up on our pregnancy corset demonstration, having never been pregnant, are belly bands a modern equivalent to pregnancy corsets? So, yes, kind of. Um, the thing about the corset is it gives a lot more structure. Uh, it uh, has the uh, boning in it, and it's a lot less flexible. Belly bands are a little less restrictive. They're a little more flexible. Um, but yeah, pretty much. And in fact, a lot of things are the modern equivalent of what corsets would do. Corsets never really disappeared. They just kind of morphed into other things. They became the brassiere and the girdle. They, you know, they became um, after the girdle. What was after the girdle? I don't remember. Oh, I know we have Spanx today. We've got <laughs> yeah, Spanx. They, they became Spanx. Um, I don't particularly like them. I actually prefer a good, robust, well-boned corset because the stronger your support, the less your body is going to move around inside it and the less friction there is. And friction and I don't get along that well. Got it. Got it. No, I, I can kind of see that. Um, I don't corset well. I have several corsets. I don't corset well. I They annoy me. And then I, yeah, I vest well, though. I vest well. <laughs> you do. You vest very well, Brandy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> oh, I was really cute for a second. Sorry. Uh, Jennifer Pierce asks, she says, I've been a vegetarian 25 years since dissecting anatomy class. Jonathan, I found it fascinating that you became a more adventurous eater. Is there anything else interesting that you've eaten? And now I want this to be a whole conversation that we're all in. <laughs> well, um, I think that, uh, yes, well, let me just say, I think that uh, knowing more about where food comes from, especially food from animals, a lot of people choose to, with that knowledge, not eat it. And I completely understand that. I chose to, with that knowledge, to to eat it even more, you know, excitedly and, and more widely. I think people like you and me have more in common than, than the average person who kind of just eats everything but doesn't want to know where it comes from. So I feel like wanting to know more is good. I can identify with that. Whether you choose to eat less or more because of it, you know, that, that's a small detail. So, so um, what is the weirdest thing you're eating? The weirdest thing, I guess, well, you know, the Inupiat um, Eskimo dishes are really some of the most unusual. And there's many I have not tried. Um, I had a dish called Mickey Yuck when I was in northern Alaska, which is fermented um, whale meat. It's ferment, fermented inside its own blood, basically. Wow. Basically just left out. You know, there's a lot of fermenting going on traditionally um, in the Arctic. And one of the most amazing foods I've heard about that I've never tried, but the natives will um, 
make an entire sack out of one seal skin and stuff it with whole birds, like the I've entire bird, feathers, bones, and all. Yeah, it's called yeah. Kiviak. Mm-hmm. And then they leave it outside for about a year. And um, when you go to eat it, everything has around the same consistency, bones and everything else. So, And they just go at it. I would love to try that. I never got the chance to. Um, Anthro says, anyone else get hungry in dissection labs? It's a real thing. I swear I'm not super weird. Honey, you are in the right place if you weird. This is the peculiar book club. <laughs> right. um, and it's meat. It's meat that you're looking at, you know, under the skin of those, of those cadavers. It's meat. You know, meat is meat. Muscle is muscle and muscle is meat. Um, We don't eat other human muscles for obvious (laughs) ethical and legal reasons, um, which I don't need to, you know, explain. But um, under the microscope, you know, human muscle, beef muscle, lamb muscle, all all looks pretty similar and pretty much indistinguishable. I've eaten a lot of strange animals. Um, uh, Yeah. I can't speak to that particular (laughs) point because I have... Actually, I, I got all the way through a biological anthropology PhD without ever taking gross anatomy. So I, I don't know what goes on in the anatomy lab. I did visit an anatomy lab at University College London at one point, And I have to say, I actually prefer decomp over formaldehyde. Oh, well, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if you're totally alone in that. Um but yeah, it's not. Though Abigail says formaldehyde makes you hungry. Formaldehyde <laughs> made me nauseate. Nauseate. Like I, I would much, much prefer. I so I taught forensics for a couple of years, and um, the culmination of the forensics class was we buried a couple of dead pigs and then had our students uh, excavate them. Ah, I do not mind decomposition. I really okay. do mind formaldehyde. Got it. Got it. Uh, Susan Ballinger said her daughter ate. I don't know how to pronounce that. Balut? I'm not sure what I've heard of that, but I don't know what it is. Balut is a embryo, a duck egg that is still that is in the oh. embryo. So it's a baby duck on the hot shelf. Is it fermented okay. or is it century egg kind of thing? I think not fermented. Interesting. I so I am actually allergic to a lot of vegetables, which is. Uh, unfortunate because I like vegetables, but I so basically it's easiest for me to eat things that were once breathing, and as a result, I've eaten a lot of things that were once breathing. Um, I think the weirdest was probably silkworm pupae, and I got a little exoskeleton, and it was sort of you know, <laughs> soy sauce, anything, it tastes fine. Was it crunchy? No, it was soggy, which is, I think, why it was a little bit like, oh, that's mushy. It's like a mushy worm, kind of, but it tasted mm. like soy and I got some stuck in my teeth. So, I, oh, Susan, yes, bird embryo, that's what that is. I also, uh, okay. I'm allergic to a lot of things. I'm allergic to bananas, which makes eating out in restaurants very difficult because a lot of places are doing fusion lately with yeah. planting. But I have to be carnivorous because, again, uh, uh, various side effects of the EDS mean that I'm always anemic. So, and I can only eat, I, I can only process bioavailable heme iron. And so now then, I'm curious, what's the weirdest thing you've eaten, Rebecca? It's the weirdest thing I've eaten. You know, people ask these things and then I immediately lose sight of everything <laughs> I've ever eaten in my entire life. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, Davey, <laughs> you, what's the weirdest thing you've eaten, Davey? 
Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, I've I, this is a, too weird, obscure, but Cow Tongue was it actually pretty good? I've had, had that in a nice restaurant downtown. Um, I've had frog's legs. Frog's legs were delicious. Yep, oysters, uh, rattlesnake. I've had time... gonads, <laughs> testicles. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Fried I up. I think I did have like a quail egg shot or something like that, where it was like in teriyaki sauce and you, you shoot the whole thing back. That was just like a lot of things raw. Yeah. Yeah. That mm -hmm. one was weird. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm curious now. Peculiars. We got to know yeah. what's the weirdest thing y'all have eaten. We heard Susan Ballinger's daughter ate some weird stuff. What about the rest of you guys? So I used to do a TV show. Uh, I did a local TV show here in Cleveland called Three Squares, and it was about restaurants. It was kind of like diners, drive-ins, and dives. Um, but they would try to bring out, like, the big dishes. So it was, like, the hamburger that was, like, 12 patties across and, and stuff yeah. like that. So I've seen some crazy dishes in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got um, – we have Jennifer Pierce saying she ate a stew once with squirrel and snake. Yeah, um, I actually am probably one of the few people you know who can field dress a squirrel. I've had a lot of that. Um, snake, hey. oysters, oysters, yeah. Let's see, what else? Squirrel, hey, come on now. Squirrels taste good. They eat nuts, guys. They just, it's nutty. It's, <laughs> good. Are they really? Are they? Yeah, they taste, but not like a city squirrel. City squirrels eat trash. It'd be like eating a raccoon, which I've also eaten, and it's terrible. Um, let's see, my friends eat crickets and grasshoppers. Mountain oysters, yeah. Mountain oysters. There you go. There they are. All right. I don't know how we got on this conversation, but I'm loving this part of the show. We should probably get back to the books, but um, let's see. We're just combos. Jonathan, Jonathan, you described in such detail the the liver and uh, what was the soup you were trying to get in um, when you were in the Middle oh, East? Oh, yeah, lung soup. Um, right. You know, lungs are lungs are illegal to sell as uh, human food in the U.S. and Canada and a few other countries. You can buy them as dog treats, but not not human treats. You know, you um, it's the lungs are unique in that way. But um, yeah, my book touches on a lot of food topics. Oh, fermented yes, whale! Excellent. Oh, whale! Please, okay. please do not eat cow brains, whomever. Yeah, cow brain, I saw that cow brain, That seems like bad. That's bad. I mean, That's I guess if we're going off not strictly eaten, but have have in the process of one's job put in one's mouth, I do know the trick of. <laughs> sticking bone to your tongue to see whether or not it's bone, which oh, yeah. you did not do either because you can pick up um, mad cow disease. Well, actually, at the bone lab that I was in um, mm. here at up Cleveland, all the bones have been treated with arsenic, so they do tell you, like, don't don't put these in your mouth. <laughs> Wash your hands real good afterwards. That, that also is the problem. Like, heavy metals, including arsenic. Yeah. Uh, definitely don't do that but it's an old archaeologist trick if you have something you don't know if it's rock or plastic or bone you just stick it to your tongue and if it sticks it's bone and if it doesn't stick it's something else interesting see i learn something new here all the time so so next time i'm out <laughs> foraging for bone i'll i'll know exactly what to do <laughs> um, this is like, I, biting, you know, like like biting on a gold nugget i guess to know if it's you know real or not yeah I saw it on the cartoons. I can't imagine what that was good for. Like other stuff. Oh, so this is the cow brains we ate was pre-mad cow in the U.S. Yeah. I, I wrote a lot about death practices. And of course, one of the problems uh, in some cultures, they, they eat 
human remains. They they will eat them as a way of um, reassimilating them into the tribe. And there was a lot of bad things happening because people were consuming brain and brain can be not always a good thing. Um, Higher incidences of prion diseases in cultures that do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is horrifying. Um, ants and bits and pieces of a rabbit. Well, sure. I mean, rabbits are good. What? Does nobody some ants taste kind of sweet? The, the bits, the bits and pieces of the rabbit. Did you find the rabbit in bits and pieces, or was that a, a conscious <laughs> choice? <laughs> like playing darts, or <laughs> what you hit, you eat. Um, we've traveled a little further afield, uh, but actually, traveling far afield is kind of what what both of you have done. Um, so I want to, I want to like get wrapped back around to your books. Partly because, Davey, do you have a quiz for our lovely guest? I do have a quiz. Yes. Do have a lovely quiz. We are okay. going to learn something. We're going to learn a little bit more before the show is over. All right. So I, I would like us to to walk into that, though. I do. I There's lots of I've gotten you guys started with this whole cow brain thing now. Brain sandwiches, pre-mad cow. St. Louis Science Center. No. I, I hear that. they're really tasty. Really? I believe that's a thing in St. Louis. Actually, I heard a podcast about brain sandwiches in St. Louis. I'm a brain sandwich. No, um, <laughs> brain sandwich with a bush beer on the side. I guess right. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot. Mm-mm, good. Okay. So I think we need to learn some stuff in this new quiz, Davy. I'm gonna buck out so that you guys have the floor, and you All know right. you can depend on the peculiars. I'll be watching the feed. Yeah. So definitely, we'll be popping their answers up, and Jonathan, I'm gonna move you up so we don't cover your face. So. Um, I tend to take some of these ideas and concepts in your books and I look at pop culture and I'm a, I'm a movie and TV kind of guy. So that's where our quizzes tend to go. And so, um, of course, the body, the human body, it takes me back to the classic fantastic voyage traveling through the human body. But I couldn't just do a quiz about the fantastic voyage because it is inspired so much throughout movies and TVs, whether it's other movies traveling inside the body. And it seemed like every animated TV show has to do a fantastic voyage episode. So for our quiz today, we are going to be doing a quiz that I called, Let's Go on a Fantastic Voyage. So these are questions about animated TV shows that have spoofed the Fantastic Voyage episode. And uh, the Peculiars are here to help you out. So uh, we are going to go from the very high academic to maybe a little lowbrow here. Uh, starting with the show Family Guy. Uh, in a classic early episode, uh, Stewie the baby attempts to stop his parents from having another baby by shrinking himself down and destroying his father's what? His father's blank. Is it his father's heart, his father's testicles, or his father's sperm? And uh, Brandy, I'm sure, will help us. Peculiars will give them a second to answer and see if they can help you out. Have you seen the show? Have you seen the episode? I've seen the show. I have not seen the episode. All right. I, haven't I was going to guess the same. Tori and Anthro Girl are both going C. Yep. Anything else? C. All right. Let's take a look at the answer. I think you both said C, and that is correct. His father's sperm. In a, in a classic Star Wars kind of-esque, uh, he flies a spaceship in and there's a big spaceship battle at destroying all the sperm. So <laughs> um, I don't think they did that in the original Fantastic Voyage. I don't think they did any of this in the original Fantastic Voyage. All right. Question number two. We're going to the world of Rick and Morty. Um, even a, maybe a more uh, uh, 
mm-hmm. sillier TV show than Family Guy even. Uh, they shrink down in their Fantastic Voyage episode, which is also a spoof of Jurassic Park. Uh, they go, they, there is a uh, amusement park inside someone's body and they enter a man's body where they have to defend themselves against different diseases. All the diseases in this man's body are out to get them, but they're surprisingly saved by this disease. Is it hepatitis C? Is it E. coli or hepatitis A? Jonathan, in your medical opinion, what disease do you think would come to the rescue in a classic, again, an early Rick and Morty episode? Well, I'm not an infectious disease specialist, but (laughs) um, I would have to go with... hmm, Oh, hang on, Kathleen. Hang on, Kathleen. I'm coming for you. (laughs) So Jonathan says... Hepatitis C. Uh, we have some B, C's. MC just said D in the, in the chat. Nobody's saying A. Rebecca, so do you have a guess? I, I will be the outlier and go with E. coli. All right, E. coli. The answer would be it was hepatitis C. Uh, they they spoof the scene in Jurassic Park where the T Rex saves them from the raptors. So they're being chased by hepatitis A, and hepatitis C comes in eats hepatitis a i don't think that's how medicine really works but hepatitis c saves them uh could be an idea for a future treatment maybe (laughs) the virus is eating each other and this one is for kathleen i didn't even know this one was for kathleen on the show the magic school bus it was actually the first uh as soon as i saw this it was the first show i thought of uh they've apparently done this three times throughout the history of the magic school bus but uh, I believe this was their first adventure into the human body. Miss Frizzle takes the class inside sick Ralphie, but to escape his white blood cells and get the bus out, Ralphie must do what? Does he have to sneeze them out, cough them out, or pass gas? Let's sneeze. <laughs> sneeze the most, um, has the most velocity. All right. All right. What are they saying in the chat, Brandy? Lots of A's. I think you all have seen this episode. There's some very confident answers there. Uh, Jonathan, do you have a guess? And sneeze sounds pretty good. Go with pass gas, though, just for fun. (laughs) Might be a little too much for the magic school bus. The answer was sneeze. Uh, That's how how Ralphie gets him out. Cough was actually, that's interesting, they try to enter through his mouth, but he's coughing because he's sick, so they can't, he keeps coughing them out. So they have to find a different way in to the body. Um, so it was a bit of the trick question in there. <laughs> I think you guys, I think they did pretty well, Peculiars. What do you think? I think that that was actually really good. I'm surprised at how many of the Peculiars knew the answers to these. <laughs> they were ready for Magic School Bus. They, they were, were on it. Oh my gosh, you guys were on it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so... Getting back to the uh, the slightly more academic flavor of the things we do here, uh, <laughs> I want to ask each of you a question because in addition to having readers, our peculiars, many of them are also writers. So I'd like to ask a couple writer questions uh, too as we go along. And so as writers, how did you approach this book? You know, it's kind of a difficult game. Some, uh, you know, in some ways it's very, very academic topics but you can take these different approaches. So I'm going to start with Jonathan. Jonathan, you, this is the most unusual way I've ever read a medical book. And so I, I want to ask you as a writer, how did, what's your process like? Um, I would say it started early in medical school with just jotting down 
random, unusual ideas. You know, a lot of the weird stories in the book, like me learning anatomy and deciding, oh, I want to go to a slaughterhouse to learn how anatomy works in that very different, very unusual setting. I mean, I actually did that. It's funny when the book came out, some of my old classmates were like, I remember when you went to that slaughterhouse. I can't believe it. Um, so I think a bizarre curiosity helps naturally. Um, and just honest, I feel like I jotted down a million and one things over the last 10 years or so, and then kind of painstakingly pieced them all together. Um, a lot of it was piecing together little bits, this story, that story, uh, you know, this observation, that observation, kind of gathering everything I've ever thought or written about the liver into one place and then seeing what kind of stories might come out of it. And the same for each chapter. So it was a lot of piecing together little bits as opposed to kind of starting with the grand idea and just writing. I don't, I'm not sure how other writers do it, but I could not do it that way. All right. I like that. Was there a, uh, I was curious about this the whole time. Was there a body part that got left on the cutting room floor? Was there, was there a body part, you know, an organ that you really wanted to write about? Right. Left on the slaughterhouse floor. Um, I think, um, that's a good question. There was the beginnings of a a chapter on the pancreas and and I'm, I'm sorry to the pancreas, but it didn't make this book. Maybe the next one. Um, yeah. Um, so there are other ones out there. I don't know if there's enough body parts to, to fill a book, but uh, the pancreas is all I have for the next book so far. So hopefully, <laughs> other hopefully other body parts will come to me also. That's fantastic. Um, okay, Rebecca, you're up. I, my question is, you know, different kind of process. How did you come to your research? How did it how did it transform into a book? Because for a lot of people, that's like this weird mystery. And I write books, and I've written a lot of them, and it's still a weird mystery. <laughs> so so I'd love to hear more about your process. We can swear on this show, yeah? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so the actual process of writing the book was unfucking my dissertation. <laughs> um, oh, that's my evil laugh. I don't normally bring that out here. For a dissertation, you need a two to three hundred page research project, and that's what I had. But it's very, very different than a book that is pitched quasi academic, quasi to popular mm-hmm. culture. You know, anybody could pick up and read this book and understand it, which is what I wanted to aim for. The research itself developed from um, first my master's project, which I started in 2011 and continued on with not only because I found it so amazing and fun and interesting to do, but because somebody told me that I couldn't do it. Ah. So I was like, no, you don't get to tell me that. And I just kept going. And I, I love my topic beyond belief. I love the fact that I've become the corset Iowa person, <laughs> and, you know, despite that particular person who has a large backstory there. But in the writing process itself, I write easily and quickly, and it's difficult to describe that because I write the same way I talk. Writing to me is talking to the screen, is talking to Mm -hmm. my audience. And literally my first book, the course, or um, Desire in the Age of Robots and AI, which is sitting beside me. No, it's sitting under my computer right now, propping my computer up. Um, I wrote it in in five weeks. I wrote it between Thanksgiving break and the end of Christmas break. And I just, I write like I breathe. 
I like you telling us this because I actually write that way too. It's just that I throw about 75% of it out. So it has to keep repeating. I don't. <laughs> this is all. Everybody in my surroundings, I write in finished form. That's, that's amazing. That's yeah, I don't. I definitely write fast though. I fight like serious. It comes out fast. I, I turn in first drafts of things all the time. My first draft of every single book proposal Coming on site. That's what Stephanie says. You're just, you're motivated by rage. This is great. You know, Stephanie, I have a memoir in this somewhere. It will all come out one of these days. So, so Kathleen has a question for Rebecca. Final question. She wants to know, what's your favorite corset? I should have asked. Little underbust number from uh, Camellia's corset. I bought it on Amazon. It is flattering. It is comfortable. I love it to pieces. Like this small black underbust corset, five um, hooks up the front. Gorgeous. That sounds good. I've often, I, 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 I feel like those would be easier to wear for me. I don't know. I might be wrong about this, but those seem like. I think you need to get a bespoke one. And in Probably. fact, I think it, just based on your general body plan, some yeah. of the male um, oriented corsets or vest corsets might look better on you. This makes sense, considering most of what I wear are men's clothes. <laughs> it does make sense. Um, I mean, rolls are stupid. Let's do cinnamon rolls instead. Well, exactly. I like that a lot. Um, so uh, last questions. Any last questions for anybody? I know it takes, unfortunately, so when I ask them that, like, there's just this, how does it, like, 45-second gap between them being able to do something and me getting it. So we have to just kind of sit here, like... Do, do, do. This is the girl from Ipanema, which means I'll hum that for a minute. While everybody um, but uh, in the meantime, um, nobody gave us any other <laughs> titles for drinks. So I'm going to come up with, I think we're going to go with Laced Crooked, Laced Crooked for the one that, uh, for Rebecca's cocktail, which was the vodka one. But um, I'm going to, I'm going to make up, I, I'm, I'm going to come up with an idea, I think, for, for the unseen body. And I just want to call it Rivers of Booze. <laughs> that works because <laughs> technically ginger beer is not real booze but rum is so you know rum like the blood of the body flowing through you i think you know we talked a lot about tributaries uh and 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 things in your book there so that's, R that's R rivers of booze sounds like a theme night for a fraternity sorority party <laughs> um so okay it up like the hunger games what's that you could class it up like the Hunger Games. Yeah, well, it's possible. It's possible. We could. Oh, she says, "I love." She says, "I love both those cocktail names." All right, cheers. That's what we're doing. There you go. I get a pin, you guys. I get a pin. Um, wait a minute. Who is our? I have to go back to see who who came up with crooked lace or to lace crooked. I'll find you. Don't worry, and we'll send you a pin. Our octopus pin, which uh, is uh, is lovely squid named Julius, Doctor Julius. Julius sees her, which was <laughs> yeah, which was named. Sarah, who I don't think is here tonight. Um, so it is. It has been absolutely fantastic having all of you, uh, all of you, I mean, everybody on, and particularly having Jonathan and Rebecca and these two amazing books. They have been such a joy to, to read and to share. And I know that uh, everybody's been really excited to get their hands on them. If you have not bought one yet, don't, oh, Kathleen. That's right, it was you. Congratulations, Kathleen. Everybody say yay, Kathleen. Yay. Yay. Yeah. <clears throat> if you have not got your hands on a copy of one of the books yet, you still can. There are signed copies. There's Brain Lair, 
books. There's also Loganberry and Fox Lane and all of these places have signed copies of both books. You can get them and you can uh, have them of your very own, which is, is always really wonderful. Last but not least, we have a special show that is happening next week, not to forget. Those of you who are subscribers, it is free. If you're not a subscriber, you can still come. It is going to be Susie Lennox talking about body snatchers. And uh, there's a little, um, Davey's been back doing a little film work and you're not gonna wanna miss this. So that's coming up. If you also have checked the news this week, you know that they found the lost Shackleton shipwreck, the Endeavor, and that Dan Snow will be with us on March 24th. March 24th, he'll be here talking about taking this enormous adventure up there to find the lost shipwreck in the ice of the Antarctic. And lastly, we have our um, another subscriber event, which is Lindsay Fitzharris is gonna come and talk with us on the 31st of March about a sneak peek of her new book. Free for subscribers. If you're not a subscriber and you want a sneak peek, they are being sold as tickets and you can find them up at our site. So you can go do that. And I, I keep saying the last thing, but there's one more last thing. Season three is now available and you can go and uh, and do that as well. We're super excited. I know several of you have already gone on. So it has lots of fun people. We've got all kinds of, that's this month. That's this year's. <laughs> Sorry, Davey, that's the wrong one. But still there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is really exciting um we're gonna have a lot of fun people and i know i've been posting it you'll find it you can come up to our site and see it there uh i'm excited about having all of you back and to do all the other fun things that we do and all the swag and i did make socks because of you your suggestions socks with squids on them just for you so um once again thank you all for being here rebecca jonathan and davy a place where if you're weird, your family. You got the blue bottle blues when you wake up in the night. Don't make a big mistake, cause you can never make it right. When you reach out for the vial, feel the ridges in the glass. It's a matter of survival, baby. Better watch your breath.